Okay, hi everyone. <laughs> We're recording on a Halloween morning for me, and I guess uh, what do you call the day before Halloween? I guess the the setup, the Halloween setup weekend for everyone else. And we have decided. We've just been talking about uh, our introductory question, which is for today: Who would you want to dress up as you for Halloween? And Joe was already regaling me with his Oscar Isaac story. You have to tell it again? Well, yes. yes, Joe. You need to tell us how he looked into your eyes. I want all the beautiful details. Like, just how dark are his eyes in real life? Does his lower lip truly tremble rakishly? Is that nose patrician? Like, come on, let's hear the details. The nose is patrician. Um, I'll give you that much. He, I do not recall if his lip trembled. Um, his eyes are very dark. I'll give you that much. Um, and wet. And well, I mean, hopefully, you know, are they limpid a like a deer's? Like, especially wet eyes. You know, he just like constantly is crying. <laughs> so his yeah, eyes um, glisten. You're saying his eyes glisten? Yeah, they sparkle in the light. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I was at Cafe mm. Reggio, which is a old, famous cafe by NYU. Um, that is really, really good coffee and Italian desserts. So whenever I'm there or whenever I'm in the area, I go. Um, and Oscar Isaac was sitting down next to me um, at the table next to me. And he just kind of like looked over, not not rakishly, not sexually, um, just, you know, looking around the cafe. Uh, and he was just like, huh, we kind of look like each other. Um, well, if you ever... I need to be a stunt double. Let me know. Wow. So how would you let him know, Joe? Joe, how was he? How were you supposed to let him know? Telepathically? Yeah, I don't really know. He didn't like give me a cell number or anything. Yeah, just sent him a DM on Instagram. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I was that guy who was having tea in that place in New York one day, and (laughs) I want to, I want to, you know, stunt your double. Stunt your double. I want to stunt on your double. I want to stunt on your double. High kicks, twirls. I like that. <laughs> I don't know what any of this means. I'm okay. going to <laughs> How about you, Jer Bear? Well, the person I think who would have to play me. There's only one person with the with the chops, really. And that's Philip Seymour Hoffman. God bless his, God rest his soul. I you, know? you know, I could really? see it. I could see a Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're if we're allowed to do uh, posthumous nominations, then I yes. will definitely be Philip Seymour yes. Hoffman. Okay. That was Jared, by the way. And before Jared, that was Joe, because this is supposed to introduce right. us somehow. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I <laughs> forgot about that part. Okay. All right. No worries. I'm I'm wonky. I'm wonky donkey brain today myself. Fiona, how about you? Uh. So. Uh, 
I only care about the opinions of dead people, but I guess like if if Thomas Pinchon dressed up as me, that would be pretty cool because no one would know about it, but it would be worth so much credibility if anyone ever found out. <laughs> yeah, that'd be pretty rad. That'd be good. That'd be good. Um, I've long thought about the casting for my eventual biopic, and I think the only performer or actor capable of capturing my energy would be Alana Bonham Carter. Ooh, good one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Right. I mean, like I could say it. Right. I mean, like the wild manic days, the sultriness, the fact that Tim Burton would have to direct. <laughs> so God, that's the deal breaker. <laughs> could you? Well, they're divorced now. Anyway, it's 2022. Everyone's divorced now. I know, I know, but I hope spring's eternal for people like me. All right, everyone. So this is it. We are looking at the last two chapters of the book that we've been looking at over the past couple months. Dangerous Games with the Moral Panic Over Play of Role-Playing Games says about play, religion, and imagined worlds by Joseph B. Laycock as it was printed by the University of California Press back in 2015, I believe. So, friendos, here we are. Here we are at the juncture. And Fiona, in our pre-chat, you were saying that this episode actually feels timely. Why is that? So, this episode feels timely. A TED Talk featuring Fiona Maevgeist, an actual academic at one point in her life. So, I think for the end of it, what really kind of kicking it off matters is the way that Laycock frames the idea of secular religion, right? There's this concept that he points to with the way, and this is published long enough back that the people that did this weren't murdered, but, you know, they tried to ban a superhero play from a preschool, which people felt was an attack on something akin to religion, and this gets into the stakes of what is at stake in imagination and in imagining things. And then we get to have, you know, a number of talks about why people don't want you to imagine differently. And I've been reading Mark Fisher again. Um, <laughs> but I think that's a good starting point, right? Is, um, right, why, why does imagination have stakes? Because we all think it has stakes. You know, I think a crude dismissal of role-playing games importance is to say that like there is nothing at stake there's at a bare minimum what you're doing with your time at stake and i try to value my own and you know what are the limits of imagination and how should society manage them you know do video games cause you to be violent i don't know but doom caused me to be a much cooler adult i mean they finally published a large meta-analysis of like a bunch of video game and uh, education research this past month and uh, turns out no doesn't cause violence but probably makes you smarter in a whole lot of ways interesting imagine that oh no the children are more intelligent we should ban them because <laughs> the children are too intelligent I mean, well, if they're too know. smart, they talk back. <laughs> no, I mean, like, it, let's actually get into the theory here, because we were discussing the last part where we're looking at a lot of the functionality of RPGs a, under a religious lens, almost like how, how RPGs are 
um, capable of creating meaning for its participants, largely because you don't have the, you know, you're able to like essentially dissolve the world into meaningful blocks through the act of playing a game because you need to like arrest meaning in a different context and all these other things. And, and, and through all that like psychological falter role, what happens is people then are able to invest themselves into avatars or into different ways of expressing things that are meaningful them meaningful to them through their characters, which is, I think, more of more or less like, a, you know, a basic overview of any kind of play, really. I can play therapy is dependent on these on those concepts. What might be more important is that you did have people starting to use that meaning-making uh, capacity of the RPG to articulate um, negative things, like, for example, the cultishness of D&D or the unquestioning ability of D&D. And I think that puts people in a very uncomfortable place, which is the whole notion that, uh, wait a minute, this RPG resembles... Mm. <laughs> what we do every Sunday and um, does this I think I think it, it, that uncomfortable question now you know, reaches up which is are we playing here whenever we do our own religious uh, obligation I mean I agree I think the contrast between religion and sports fandom has been drawn much more often and much more popularly I think than between religion and role playing games but it all kind of fits in the same general space i think it just it irks when it's play i think there's something about the puritanical nature of the modern west that really does not like the implication that play can act akin to faith okay so that actually leads to an interesting question i would like for everyone to like think about it but do you think that uh the satanic panic is is in its essence, would you would you consider that to be a Western invention? Well, the satanic like, panic. Well, or or, are, or and so on. Are pretty, like I mean, all of the modern ones are kind of a Western export, right? Mm-hmm. But like, I mean, like scapegoating and like you know finding an out group that you don't like is basically one of the foundational ways that you form a society. I mean, that's just human. Yeah, it's it's like, I, I'm aware that people could do better. I just have found zero examples of human beings that have successfully done that and not been murdered. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, uh, I think to the extent that you draw this like very, very broad definition of what this book has been about and what we've been talking about, it's just, fundamentally human it's not fundamentally western but like this specific outcropping of it role-playing games and the satanic panic i would say that's pretty fundamentally western oh yeah i mean it's kind of like QAnon is an idea that spread well because like believing in conspiracy theories makes it easier to believe in more conspiracy theories even if like many of the conspiracies don't directly impact you it makes it easier to believe them yeah it makes you susceptible and you know RPGs are held by like a nerd subculture and I think that like you know, on the does gaming cause violence thing, I think that maybe the other bit of research that came out more recently of like identifying as a gamer might mean that you have worse views of women. <laughs> and 
I think that that might be more complex than just saying like people are incels or something, but it is like, yeah, there's something about gamerist identity that is about like a form of masculinity that most people can access. Like most people suck at sports. Like, you know, most people would be embarrassed at them. Most people can get okay at Call of Duty. Like, being mid at Call of Duty, a game with tons of aim assist, actually is not particularly difficult. And, you know, being slightly better than mid doesn't take that long. RPGs kind of have that, and that sense of, like, you know, accomplishment that creates a clickishness that might be mentally unhealthy. But I also think it's so interesting how much the Satanic Panic seems to, like ignore more obvious social problems like alienation or that like being depressed <laughs> oh my gosh i mean i do like the whole idea that well i'm not like i like don't okay it's not like i don't like the idea per se i think i'm fascinated by the idea that people would rather find increasingly convoluted um like reasoning for why something's happening rather than like looking at, at directly like you're saying fiona um, there's a particular section here which I found rather interesting about the magical gamers where there's a relationship between like um, magical worldviews and role-playing games. Like how people would people would like mock D&D for lacking occult realism but then at the same time you would have like you would have like people saying like look see the occultists are adopting D&D ergo <laughs> there must be some truth to this magical like they're going to hypnotize your father into doing what you want you know what I mean that kind of thing like because now he's a level 20 mage and in real life that means he can cast spells and I kind of found like I kind of found that rather interesting where it does speak to it does speak to what Fiona's pointing out which is that you're looking at increasingly like convoluted discussions like what really is a representation of magic seriously like what's the representation of magic quote unquote in D D? <laughs> when when as it pertains to like high religious function when you're just kind of like because people like to pretend i mean it's just it's just one of those things where you're just yeah. kind of like Oh my god, like seriously, all this uh, academizing. Well, <laughs> like, and I, I swanky. Oh, I I think it is just the thing that at the close of right like there's the bit after the beginning of um how the imagination became dangerous about sort of mo moral entrepreneurship that I think is very interesting, but just at the beginning of it sort of there's this point that like when he connects children's play to the idea that like games are important in some way of like you know banning kids from making gun gestures at each other will clearly prevent shootings you know <laughs> ignoring you know kids learn and model behavior <laughs> um, but also that like this totally destroys the idea that like there is something called pretend and that gaming exists in that and that like there's something disturbing about like doing things that you wouldn't do in your normal life. Like I have never in my real life, like 
taken human life in games i've done it casually like millions of times at this point since i started my favorite forms of playing yeah like i i rebooted hotline miami recently and i've been trying to a plus the whole thing like right there's something weird about watching death over and over or like doing it but that also to some degree ignores that that's a sensationalist aspect of a game that also involves enormous amounts of logistics and like doing weird negotiation because that's what was exciting to the people that started playing it it's more immersive than a war game yeah there's this there's this through line at the beginning of chapter seven that I think doesn't quite land where I expected it to or maybe wanted it to. Um, But there's this point in here, he makes this point that adults, sort of against expectation perhaps, ironically perhaps, have trouble discerning between reality and imagination. And he brings up this thing with the water bottle and the cyanide, right? There's an experiment where they gave adults water bottles and had them fill it up at a tap and then gave them a label that said cyanide and had them put it on the bottle and then asked them to drink it. And many of them would not. Um, so there was this, <clears throat> there was this sort of uh, strange situation where they had positive knowledge that this was fine and still refused to step outside of the imaginative space. So there's this denial of that line. And then on the following page, um, he sort of flips that and, and says, they, you know, speaking specifically in terms of the satanic panic, these people knew that the quote unquote objectional material was intended as fiction, um, but they refused to step outside of it. So they refused to regard it as imaginary. So there's this sort of active component to it. And then the very next thing is he goes to biblical liter- literalism, which I think is lovely because you get this, this impression that he doesn't really quite unpack that the way we treat scripture, especially the way we treat scripture with children, you know, dragging them to church and making them memorize Bible verses and whatever else, this is a moment where you don't think, right? Like don't interpret, don't think, we'll, we'll tell you what to think, read the thing, believe the thing. Um, and so imaginative play gets in the way of that very structured thing and he doesn't quite get there with it i guess he's he's said it at several other points in the book so it's kind of fine well let's look um, at this part because i think this is the, there are three yeah, so all of that stuff i just said is on yeah. 213 and 214 yeah but like the arguments are actually quite because let's can i let's just wax poetic on laycock here because he writes quite well mm. um where he argues that for example number by conceding to the modernist assumption that stories are only worthwhile if they are true in a historical and scientific sense, biblical literalists were left poorly equipped to analyze the significance of fantasy, which contains symbolic significance despite being imaginary. So there's like already like uh, a habituated like internal processing error because of how it was taught. And then you have, <clears throat> sorry, and then you have the whole notion that there is a fear beneath the religious attack on role-playing games there lurks a fear that Christianity could be a socially constructed fantasy world and this fear is directly connected to the intolerance for multiple forms of truth from the literalist perspective if biblical narratives are not true in a literal modernist sense then no other meaning they may have is of value and then it's just like you know there you go it's it's basically 
the the issue because he ends by saying, while fantasy is not an inherent threat to tradition, as long as human beings possess imagination, tradition will never be secure. Because you have the ability to imagine alternatives. And that is especially dangerous for people or institutions. Yes, who are... Because really, when you get down to it, like, I'm not going to say that uh, D&D and other RPGs like kicked me out of the Catholic faith. If anything, it was my coming out. <laughs> I mean, like, like, you know, it wasn't part of it. It was more of, oh, you're not going to treat me well. Bye-bye. It wasn't me thinking, oh, my goodness, I could be a princess on a dragon that made me go, hmm, Jesus, maybe not for me. That wasn't the case. Uh, if I, th- I think the problem is that if it's imagination that is not directed towards the furtherance of their plan, then you have a problem. And I think I really like, there's a bit in there about um, how it annihilates context. The, the anti-role-playing game literature um, tends to resist any notion of context. And I really like that point because that's, that's also like, that's scripture, right? That's inerrancy of scripture. It's, it's about, this is always true, no matter what, no matter the context, it's always, always, always true. And if we start considering that perhaps it's not true in certain contexts, then it falls apart. Um, which is, a, I want to be clear, a peculiarly modern way of viewing these things, um, which I think is also something he says. In there. Um, well, but that's, that's really important for the way these things function, right? This, this annihilation of context. What's interesting to me even about the biblical literalism analogy is that he also draws back to Plato, you know, with in, in the utopia, you ban all poets, you know, because the imagination is such a dangerous faculty and that really does kind of point out exactly how old the, you know, occidentalist fear of um, imagination is. I mean, look, there's some, <laughs> here's, the, let's, here's, here's the scene which Laycock uses to really elaborate on how, like, the weirdness of literalism and double, it's just here. In Stairway to Hell, the well-planned destruction of teens, published by Chick Publications, author Rick Jones describes a study on D&D conducted by the Christian Broadcasting Network. This study was actually an episode of the 700 Club, in which game designer Gally Sanchez explained that the D&D villain Moloch is also a biblical personage. Jones writes, They concluded that D&D does contain authentic occult materials. Rituals, magic spells, charms, names of demons were all authentic. They said a list of names of demons and devils that were in a new D&D book kept showing up in the Bible. The conclusion of the study should send Severus up and down the spine of every D&D playing teenager. They found that D&D is not fantasy. And the reason why D&D is not fantasy is because it uses things that were found in the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like wow you're expanding your brains things outside of the bible cannot be literal can be literal too it's like rather than question your own stuff that oh if, if if they're able to use our stuff then that means could our stuff not be real that's too painful a thought so instead what happens is oh my gosh they're using our stuff which confirms their stuff is real i mean you <laughs> You gotta cut your product with something people recognize. I 
honestly, I wish deities and demigods had statted Jesus Christ. You know, I mean... He's a public domain figure, I'm just saying. <laughs> I can see uh, how that makes people... Yeah, go, go. He is now statted for 5e, though. That's um, what I was going to say. Evangelicals did it. And you yeah. can go back in time to reenact the Michael Moorcock book where the person realizes that he has to become Christ to make Christianity exist so he can travel back in time. Wait, 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 wait. Sorry. Can you repeat that? Number one, there's a stat block for Jesus. So what uh -huh. is he? A 20th level cleric? Uh, <laughs> he's just a man. <laughs> I think he's a zero level human. Yeah. Okay. And then number two, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm dying. The, the point of the, there's a, there's, is, was I hearing that correctly? There's a module where you need to become Jesus to change time. No, no, it's a Michael Moorcock novella. Uh, behold the man. Okay. All right. I was. You're supposed to do it where you're supposed to agonize. I think over whether or not you allow Christ to perform his miracle of you know being crucified, died, buried, and resurrected, or if you like want to save Jesus because oh, you're the sort of Christian that believes that gosh. like. What if Jesus had just flipped off Pilate and said, "Fuck you, no, I'm not going to die today," and then shot him? And you have to explain to them that <laughs> like firearms didn't exist. <laughs> What are we do Okay, you see, this is one of those things where you're just kind of like, given that we have evangelical stat blocking Jesus, does it mean that somewhere out there you have people like trying to do attack rolls on Jesus' AC? Does it mean that people's people do saving throws versus Jesus? I mean Yeah, like I, I think Jesus is a zeroth level carpenter in the thing like i think that they explicitly do the thing of like he performs a miracle but he's fully a person but i'd have to ask sean richer the only person i know that owns that book it's I, i'm sorry i'm i'm dying a little inside um or joe probably also owns it because joe is a book hoarder <laughs> joe do you have a copy of that on hand i don't sean is also the only person i know who has it. okay but i guess i guess the question then becomes does that mean that D&D, uh, or role-playing games rather, has lost its, its uh, at least enough of its like cultural cachet as a panic situation? Because now you see evangelicals basically appropriating it, if that's the case. Well, I mean, I'd argue it's like Unitarian Universalism, right? Like, it, it's a nominally secular phenomenon that has, like, religious features, it, it's much different in that you use are explicitly a religion and agnostic and etc. But like, you know, Christian evangelicals used to be very upset about them because you tend to be liberal. But now, like, they have much more virulent talking points about other stuff and, you know, view them as nominally Christian on some level. Um in the same way i think like D, D is just culturally too existent like you know early uh, evangelical tracts are against like the existence of comic books and are where the argument that batman has homoerotic subtext comes from is a minister that believed that comic books were degrading america's youth by them spending a nickel on it and thus read a bunch of them and decided that, like, Batman is probably buggering Robin and is an adult man with a boy ward. And the only way this can exist is being sexual. 
which now is why I think Batman is a gay icon. And also rock and roll, you know, like classically all of those. Yeah, like Elvis was threatening to people at one point. Now it's a Baz Luhrmann movie. This is just too funny for me as far as I'm concerned. I mean, when you get down to it. (laughs) Sorry, I'm still finding it really funny. The idea that I mean, but, you know, I mean, to expect consistency, I think, from these these kinds of critics regarding that is is funny as well um okay so this brings us actually to that other point because towards the book uh towards the end of the book you then get i think into a very large discussion on not necessarily just the logic of the criticism from more uh, fundamental groups or fundamentalist groups on on the panic and on role-playing games as well but it also talks about like a number of things that go along the lines of what does it actually mean to think things or imagine things like this is more of a criticism of the uses of imagination like is it given that you do horrible things in your head is what you're doing sinful you're not actually doing it but you're doing horrible things in your head i have the like weird thing where i'm just not a christian at all so i don't have a belief around sinfulness other than from studying other people's beliefs religiously. <laughs> but I, I do think, um, you know, that that is what's interesting, especially in like, just the quote I highlighted really hard of submission to hegemony has become synonymous with submission to God, right? Like there's this sort of theological absolutism that, then ends up needing the imagination to make D&D culturally dangerous. You know, like, it's a very indoor kid activity. Even now that it's cool. Like, you know, it's it's an indoor activity. It's not, like, super strenuous. Like, I think the most common D&D-related injury is to your friendships or to, like, drinking too much because it's at, like, someone's house and, like, they opened too many bottles of wine. Well, yeah, I mean, but, you know, like, he also brings up interesting dichotomies here. Like, there, to answer that question, there was, like, there's a difference. Because how you're, like, how fantasy can, should make you think good things was basically um, the issue. Like, in, in this case, it's less that there was a functional, like, fantasy, there's this, there's this emerging argument that basically fantasy isn't bad. It's the difference between RPGs and, say, fantasy in general, is that D&D lets you participate in acts of evil, whereas fantasy as a genre is something that's written and can then, you can then, for example, mimic evil for educational purposes. It is set. in in so, like, in that sense, like, for example, um, he comes in to talk about how you know, Christians who oppose fantasy role-playing games also do approve of C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, even traditional fairy tales. Like, because there is a moralism to it, and even if the characters produce magic, it makes a point that those who can produce magic are not you. Like, these, they are special, and they are different, and they are moral, 
So you can only be like them if you were moral, but you will never be able to use magic. He even goes so far as to say, like, even Harry Potter's like that. In Harry Potter, kids might wish to go to Hogwarts, and if they were really, really, like, impressionable, they would love to go to Hogwarts, but they will never actually be able to cast spells. But if they want to be like Harry, Hermione, etc., they're going to have to, like, be as moral as them. So fantasy is okay because it, it could help you with morals. Uh, yes, it, and this but, is how we get to the forge. This is, yeah. I'm throwing the card in and Jared's going to say something for a while now. <laughs> but like, look, this is the forge, right? Like, this is how we conclude the forge. The forge is the conclusion of the satanic panic. Oh my God, you really, you've been sitting on that, haven't you? Oh yeah, I made this connection. Fiona and I both made this connection like super early on in this book. But yeah, I I really want to hear this because I never made that connection. The the basic like the thing I'm seeing functionally is um you've got a you've got a culture established, you know, starting really hard in the 80s and into the 90s of interpreting role-playing games as being dangerous in in the way we've been talking about for several weeks now. And in response, you get the Forge shows up and says, okay, but here's the thing. You're right. Games do have this revolutionary potential to completely reform the way we view the world. And the way all the games that you hate have been doing it is bad and dysfunctional and evil. And it, and it causes brain damage, literal brain damage. So what we're going to do is come up with this alternate theory that fully commits to all of the points of the satanic panic, all of the ideas about the effects that games have on human brains and human lives. We're going to commit to all of that and come up with this alternate set of functionally ethical, but scientifically ethical uh, systems that produce functional play and ethical play and they and they've turned it into a marketing ploy basically right but it's 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 taking on board every single like this is where you get rpg or excuse me this is where you get game design is um mind control right and it's the same sort of it's an extension of what's going on with with the satanic panic where you've got you know this is brainwashing our children well yeah it is it's mind control right According to the Forge. Yeah, like, I mean, there's even the handoff point, right, of as to some degree, Christians, specifically evangelicals, find new things that they're upset by, right? Like, to some degree, role-playing games became old hat, Vampire the Masquerade injected some, you know, serious juice into it for a little bit. But, like, teenage vampires on a whole just never really were even... That's scary, even post-Columbine to some degree, and also became more of a different topic. Anyway, right, Vampire the Masquerade does hang around, though, and stops being super socially threatening. And to some degree, the storyteller system is huge for all of the claims that are ancillary to how have people, like, imagined games differently but wrong that animates the forge right because it's like it's three five giving us you know like this you know porcelain factory to steal um antonio negri's way of describing you know uh things of like you know 
absolutely shatterable mechanics, but like everything is there inside this perfect factory. But if you do something wrong, everything breaks. And then, you know, like the storyteller system, which just you just ignore the part where it tells you to role play and only roll dice when it's interesting, which is totally revolutionary and different when PBTA does it. But yeah, the forge is built on the same scare tactics that the satanic panic is, basically. It's saying, no, you can't play those games. Those games will hurt you, (laughs) but not our games. Our games are different. I mean, and I think that right at this bit of kind of dunking on Ron Edwards in a tag team formation is though this is like a wrestling event and Jared and I both have werewolf masks on. Um, (laughs) I believe that Ron sincerely likes games and likes playing them and likes playing them with people. And just his analysis involves ignoring the existence of social skills for whatever reason. You know, on my totally scientific Twitter survey somewhat recently, most people don't play with strangers and most of the assumptions that build the educational model or edutainment model of games claim you're onboarding people who are completely unaware of what a game is and you have to like sit them down and explain to them what an imagination is because they've never had one before and you are like opening up their mind to like having an imagination which was never previously available to them so basically you just heard it here folks the forge are the natural spiritual inheritors of the satanic panic (laughs) Yeah, and quite literally, I can't overstate this. This is not me being glib. <laughs> like, I know I sound glib all the time, but that's just my voice. I tr- This is like real shit. <laughs> this is a sincerely held belief by Jared. Yes. After a lot of reading, a lot of, uh, a lot of tweeting, and then a lot of deliberate not tweeting. Yes. Um, <laughs> and the next time. The next time somebody tries to sell you some ethical bullshit about games try and, and trying to get you to buy their game, just remember, that's the satanic panic, baby. <clears throat> I have a question. Do you think that's a response to people trying to find ways to avoid <laughs> the panicked response? Or is it uh, a form of rather like... I think, I think it's like... Or is it like... Like, like sorry. Judo. It's, it's ju- judo. It's, it's taking the energy of the satanic panic and saying, no, 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 but buy my product instead. Oh my god, I don't know whether to be nodding admiringly right now or just aghast at how Jared. <laughs> well, it's real. Wait, wait. <laughs> like, I can't. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I just realized another connection, which is that like many of the play reports that existed as just so stories really are the like conversion testimonials of the person that claims to have been a satanic high priest dealing cocaine, you know, human sacrificing on the daily and a vampire who like, you know, is just totally credible when he says he hung out with Gary Gygax, a like middle-class accountant who has a libertarian streak and is pretty Christian and likes Westerns and that the two of them talked about like the secrets of fucking magic and then put it in a fucking book, you know, like that shit's bonkers, but like the actual play stories that wound up on forums constantly that were like always sitcomed they're workshopped. The story is modified. It exists to serve your purpose. Some of it is fan fiction. Not all of it. People invent things from some existing experiences. But like, 
that guy that invented his background as a vampire probably read some Anne Rice novels or some shit. Maybe he read Dracula. I don't know how much like research, you know, like evangelical like crisis actors do for their like character study. Because, like, I'm trying to get my shadow government SAG card as a crisis actor, and I cannot find where you get hired for it. <laughs> oh, my God. The tactics have gotten subtler since the satanic panic, right? And the specific complaints have gotten subtler. So instead of this game has demons in it, therefore it makes our children demonic. It's this game has bioessentialism, racism, whatever, all things that are true. I, I do want to be clear on this point. The, the, it, we're making true claims now, at least. But it was also true that it had demons in it. So let's let's like acknowledge that. But we make these claims about what's in the book. And then we draw the conclusion that that means interacting with that thing also makes you that on like the level of your brain chemistry, right? And that's that becomes the sales pitch for therefore, don't play that game, play this other one, that's presumably better because it doesn't have those things in it. Again, even if those things are, even if it's true that those things are in the book, it's it's the connection between that argument and therefore it makes you that thing is exactly the same move that the satanic panic is making, right? It's the staying, it's the refusal of imagination. <laughs> okay, so but if my head just blew up there as I'm beginning to, re- I'm not, as I'm now rethinking of our first season... <laughs> It's making me wish we read this book before you read that first history book. I'm actually going to update all of my resumes to say that I've been an occult investigator since like 2020 (laughs) because like I have investigated the paranormal. I've learned about multiple mystery cults that exist in my country. (laughs) Oh, God damn it. (laughs) The irony of me saying that. Okay. But, you know, what, what we've been dis- uh, discussing, I think, for the last several minutes really is, um, what's the name of this chapter of this? Uh, it's basically looking at the first. Also, uh, we've killed Joe. Joe is just apparently just done. No, I'm here. This has been good. I wanted, I wanted to just hear that without any kind of interjections from me. <laughs> okay. Like, but, but basically what we've been discussing so far is this uh, is chapter seven and how the imagination became dangerous. Um, it's a lot richer than that. I mean, they go into Gramsci. They talk about hegemony quite a bit in this and towards the end of it. They talk about the programming of truth and how truth needs to be programmed in order for you to be able to differentiate between myth and and thought. Um, that's what fundamentalism is all about. And for you know, being, it's a lot. It's honestly a lot. And honestly, I think everyone should read it. But I don't think we have the time to unpack all of that in one podcast. Well, we can but, do a yeah we can, we can do a wrap episode. up later on uh but basically at the end of the day are the real argument here the real final argument is precisely that that imagination is inherently threatening to belief structures that do not like the idea of alternatives and do not like the the facility of oh you know, the faculty of the mind to be used in ways which question or criticize what is essentially their shill um, okay, that's my word, not the book's word, but you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go there. That basically, like, imagination is the ability to, uh, when joined with reason in particular, uh, is 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 threatening. Is very threatening to um, 
to your sense of religious social order, and that's why they don't like it. I mean, this brings to mind the time, because this happened several years ago when Texas tried to outlaw higher-order thinking skills. I'm not <laughs> joking. There was a time when Texas, the Texas school boards, tried, or at least one particular Texas school board, tried to ban the teaching of higher-order thinking skills in schools. And if you were to look at Bloom's taxonomy, I'm sorry to use edu- edu- like education jargon, those are the skills that especially ask you, and the highest order one being creativity, meaning imagining, producing products out of one's own mind, and synthesizing, which is the ability to compare and contrast, and then to meld things and and break it down to disparate parts with, with analysis. So you're just kind of like... I'm like, That's the okay. Side of Baphomet, my it's friend. like, it's like, <laughs> dang, this is this is what it brings us to. So, um, yeah, that was like that is that is a trip, and I would say that would be the meat and potatoes chapter of this book. Like that's what makes this book something that'd be assigned in a grad level class. That chapter, particular. It's, it's funny because I think we've said that at least three of the episodes. <laughs> it's a really yeah. good book. It's like, a really, I don't really think good enough, book. Yeah. Like, I know it's hard to just take RPGs seriously. I speak as someone that works at RPGs and works on this podcast, but like, this is a book that did it. We have a template. Like, it's good. It is a little case study heavy in the first half, but like, I'd rather it had too many than too few. It, it occasionally draws on, like, you know, some of the more ridiculous elements of the subject matter, but honestly, given the subject matter and the people involved in the subject matter, I think it's remarkably even-handed, despite mm-hmm. citing a ninja energy worker claiming that you can learn Cthulhu magic from RPGs. <laughs> a problem that still plagues the RPG industry, so who am I to say that you shouldn't cite that fucking person? They exist on Twitter. All right. This brings us to, uh, I think, the last one, the, just the part before the conclusion, because um, chapter eight talks about the rivalry between, uh, you know, basically religion and RPGs, um, rival fantasies. It's entitled, and this basically looks at like what were the various strategies in which people tried to, um, how basically how they. They had, you know, like RPG aficionados and um, so-called moral entrepreneurs resembled each other. So, like how they would basically like try to sell their product by using the same things. So, for example, um, first, fantasy role-playing games and satanic conspiracy theories drew elements from the same milieu of monsters and evil rituals found in popular culture. <laughs> So I'm like, we have demons. It's fun. They have demons. No, it's not fun. You know, it's like, it's basically like using these figures to sell what they were trying to do and how, because they were drawing on the same like media, they were just interpreting it in ways which would then have, you know, how they'd frame the argument of how you'd want to do things. And of course, moral entrepreneurs generally didn't like the idea of an imaginary world and and games would say hey we are now playing a game 
set in this imaginary world. So that was something I found rather interesting. I think when you get down to it, it sounds like a very, very messy playground with two rival groups fighting for the same sandbox. I mean, like, I think that's why moral entrepreneurship's interesting. I don't have anything deeper to say. Well, yeah. I mean, oh. <laughs> he also goes so far as to say, a decade later, Joan Hack Roby's The Truth About Dungeons and Dragons presented the objectionable elements of D&D as an itemized list, just to, like, really reinforce what they were drawing on, which people actually liked. Demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, blasphemy, assassination, I'm just uh, picking up uh, some words, insanity, homosexuality, Jungian psychology. (laughs) (laughs) It's just kind of like, oh my gosh. (laughs) And I'm just kind of like, those sounds like things that are fun. (laughs) Right? So like, it's it's basically like looking at... um, demonstrating this particular kind of like um objective it's almost like rival sales pitches but with the same material again that's Mm -hmm. really really interesting though personally i felt the the previous i found the previous uh i found the previous um chapter be far more engaging chapter six or chapter Chapter seven seven, compared to chapter eight because chapter eight feels like it's more history again Chapter seven feels like this is the actual like process. Yeah. Chapter six and seven to me are like, that's the fucking book right there. Yeah. Like eight is evidence of the things that were kind of in all the chapters. And it's a very good synthesis to Mm. do a callback to Mahar pointing that out. But like it does fall kind of into like, here are the ridiculous claims made about like RPGs that are hyperbolic. Here's like the way these people structure their ridiculous claims. Here's when people point out that many of these same contents are in the actual Bible. And I think that he has a good perspective and it's interesting, but it gets a little bit like watching new atheists debate like evangelicals about creationism. (laughs) You know, which was a lot of the early internet, but like it's not a very exciting debate because one person basically says, you know, how could evolution do thing evolution has never claimed is true? And then the other person does a Richard Dawkins impersonation at them and it's just fucking horrid. I mean, we've been very generous to this book, right? But this last chapter feels like an odd note to end something after such a rich discussion. It feels like it, it. It felt like it should have been introduced in the earlier part of the book, where they already talk, were talking about history. And um, yeah, it's okay. This is the this is the personal critic. This is when you feel like an editorial board or review panel looked over the thesis and said, "You need to uh, substantiate your primary thesis statement." <laughs> Oh like, yeah, it's, that's what it feels like. It feels like the extra bit of writing you have to do where someone is very insistent that like for one reason or another, like you summarize a point you've kind of made as though the reader couldn't draw the conclusion that it's still well written. But yeah, um, this is my second time reading this book. I enjoyed it. I mean, seriously, um, it's a very good book. You're the one who- Did you find anything new in the second reading that didn't stand out to you in the first? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was reading this 
the first time, actually, around when I joined G+. Because I thought it was an interesting book, because I read some RPG blogs, and because I was interested in the moral entrepreneurship and arguments that were happening there. Um, you know, and because I was between jobs. And now, you know, I'm an industry professional on some level with a highly developed and unique skill set. <laughs> but, I mean, all of um, us are at this point, right? I, I wouldn't yeah. say that I'm an, indi- an industry professional by any means. Like That's fair. Like, I mean, sure, I have work that has yet to appear by, in a public... Like, I've been mostly self-published. Um, and I think... Uh, an, an I mean, indis- I'm only self-published. Uh, yeah, I think an industry professional is someone who everybody wants to work with. You know what I mean? No one wants to work with me, Mahar. I'm like not even well regarded as an editor because I'm unpleasant to work with. Excuse me, Fiona. Whenever I can afford you, I hire you because you and you and or Jared just cut things so well. No one else wants their words cut because they think their words are perfect. What is that? Just members of the commentariat are not actually professionals. That's you know, I mean, I would like, I would, I don't want to think of myself as a, as a professional in gaming. After reading this book, I would like to like just absorb and engage the, the tactics used. And I mean, like if there's a so-called moral entrepreneurship, maybe we can be like the RPGs can just be like immoral entrepreneurship. I would like to be the high dark priestess of gaming. How's that? Does that work instead? I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, my like, the biggest takeaway from this book, really, just a reminder of how we are very good at um, essentially like telling stories about the other side in order for us to sell ourselves. Um, it's it's the kind of marketing that I don't really appreciate, which is rather than you know elaborate on the virtues of what you have independent of what other people do. I think I think that's the big caveat. That instead, what we're seeing is people forwarding their own agenda be it mercenary mercantile whatever at the expense of another group's interests and i think that is one of the biggest uh takeaways of this book yeah so here's here's a question i have do you think role-playing games make people who participate in them more likely to engage in that behavior i think people that need to touch grass and suck puss have a serious problem with not doing those two things and being extremely online and i think some of those people have really internalized the idea that being a game designer is being a god and that you create the mind of the person that reads your book and that's another reason that probably they're extremely online um fair you know i mean like i think a big problem and I don't think this is really brought up in, in not so much in this book, um, because it tries to look purely at belief systems, though I would also argue that capitalism is a belief system that everyone actually, I think that's actually a lot of people's real religion, because they don't question it, or even if they do, they still do it anyway, kind of like Catholics with no other option, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry just saying it or it's, it's so permeated like I come from a country where it's so effing Catholic even if you're not Catholic you find yourself doing Catholic things so like that's how I that's what I think about it so like in response to your question Joe um, I don't think RPGs necessarily do that but I think 
what RPGs do instead is that it's it's just another way for I think people do it for money to be perfectly honest about it. I think I think rather than getting more followers aside from on Twitter, they're also trying to get more money. I think it's a resource grab. Well, and it now has a built-in dialectic thing of like there is now a guy that exists to disagree with you in public to market their virtue you know like remember D D gate i don't was uh, D gate D D gate was when pundit tried to make there be a gamer gate for oh, yeah. over something oh, and then yeah. all people uh Zweihander founder Dan Fox uh, claimed he was going to make an anthology called Hashtag D&D Gate by, I guess, women, which, of course, never materialized as far as I know. Um, but it is the last thing on that hashtag. Okay. There's a reason why I'm completely off Twitter and I've been off Twitter for the last, like, Yo, that Four predates weeks. you and I knowing each other on Twitter, Mahar. That's how old that beef is. I just I'm, remember everything like a horrid butcher. <laughs> I'm just glad it's done. Um, like seriously, I I have followed I have followed the path of the Jared, and Jared, I have been reading so many so many more books since I did oh, that. Oh, 100. It is right? dismaying to discover just how much time I'd spent on <laughs> social media. Oh, it eats your entire life. Now yeah. that I'm completely off it, like I have absolutely zero social media that I could, that I could think of, honestly. Okay, so I have to ask, <laughs> yes, uh, because we've been off topic for a minute, <laughs> do we have anything more to say about this book? Other than, Other than just like, buy it, gush it, awesome. read it? Yeah, like, I feel like I f- we're not stupid people, but we're not necessarily even fully equipped to do this book justice. No, I don't. There's just so much. To- yeah, I mean, it's a. Yeah, I mean, we could, I could yeah. go through it, you know, again and find new things to talk about. Yeah, but I think as far as getting the the main thrust of the book, hitting the high points, the really important things, and the things that are relevant to what we've discussed in the past on this podcast, I think we've done it. I feel yeah. pretty good about it. Yeah. So yeah, I guess in conclusion, go patronize joseph p laycock and buy this book and work your way through it uh it may be a challenge at times i cannot speak for the rest of the people on this podcast it absolutely was a challenge at times for me and i read this kind of stuff for fun uh but it was worth it and i'm glad this was the episode y'all invited me to do season not episode yeah that's the word but yeah uh this go has been kind at kind trying and we ask sometimes us ask us and questions. We'll answer them. We we love people. We keep Jared, forgetting to like solicit them before episodes. But yeah, just it's been whenever. You know. But again, I'm off social media. I've completely forgotten. None of us are making another Discord. There yeah, will never you, be a fan Discord. There will you guys need to add me to the cast full time because I'm the only one who uses Twitter, so I'm the only one who can get well, questions. I still technically have what three Twitter accounts that I monitor on a regular basis. One of them is at KindTrying. I don't monitor at all because I've gone I so far as to host. ban. I have an add-on on Google Chrome that make, bans me from Twitter. I love it. Oh, that's rad. It's really smart. Okay, everyone. Okay. That's our episode. Good night. Godspeed. Good luck. Good night, Joe. Dream of things that are very nice for you. 